For those of you that don't know, Dana tore a calf muscle in her right calf some time ago. And apparently, as a pianist, it's not just your hands that are important, but your feet as well. I told her that I would hang out down below the piano and press the pedals for her if she would just kind of knee me in the side when it was time, but she didn't think that was a good option. So this morning, we're going to um, continue our study in Acts. This sermon series and the passage that we're going to look at today begins in chapter 25 and then works its way into chapter 26. And so if you have a Bible, I would love for you to make your way there. Uh, Acts 25, beginning in verse 23, and then we will read through chapter 26, verse 11. If you don't have a Bible, for your convenience, we print the uh, passage in the bulletin, but you can also grab a Bible out of the pew rack, and today's passage starts on page 934. I was thinking this past week, Sir Anthony Hopkins once said, that you should never feel sorry for a man who owns a plane. It's good advice. And I was thinking about that, and I want to sort of steal his sentiment and alter it slightly. You should never feel sorry for a pastor who gets to preach the Bible. Right? But <clears throat> these past few weeks, I have been struggling a bit. I wouldn't mind your pity. Uh, don't feel sorry for me, but pity is okay. Um, I'll tell you why, because if you've been here, chapters 21 through 26 of Acts, I feel like that old song that my parents sang in the car by Herman's Hermits, I'm Henry VIII, I am, I am, second verse, same as the first, <laughs> it just repeats, and, and that's what these chapters feel like, uh, for six long chapters, it's, it's the same thing, essentially, over and over again, Paul is handed over to a leader or to a tribunal, Paul goes on trial. Paul makes his defense. Paul is handed over to a new leader or tribunal. Paul goes on trial. Paul makes his defense. Sort of wash, rinse, repeat. And uh, it's, it's been challenging for me. I, I hope not so for you. I want us to engage God and for he to engage us in his word and for it not to seem like the same thing week in and week out. And so here's how I want to approach this week and next week. I want you to think, and I know some of you uh, likely will not be here next week, but I want you to think of these two weeks as a two-part sermon, right? A, a two-part sermon um, spread across two weeks. The first part, you just heard the choir sing of it, Amazing Grace, I Once Was Lost. This morning, we're going to look at Paul's life and his testimony, which is part of his defense, before he was a believer, before Christ had saved him, I once was lost. And then next week, the second part, but now am found. Paul's life once Christ had captured his heart. It's all part of his testimony. It's all part of his defense. And so let's pray together, and then we will read today's passage. Heavenly Father, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word remains forever. Your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And Lord, I pray that your word would, would do its work, that your Holy Spirit which lives in us as believers, but which, uh, which is omnipresent throughout the world, that your spirit would go before the reading and preaching of the word. Uh, Lord, for those who may not be believers, that you, would, that you would do a work of quickening within them. Lord, that you would help us all to um, see your word as living, um, to believe it, to receive it. Uh, show us our sin. 
and then lead us by the hand to our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Just by way of context, um, Felix, or I'm sorry, uh, Paul was presented before For uh, Porcius Festus, um, a Roman governor who served for about two years. Uh, Paul uh, pleaded to go to Rome and to make his case before Nero. In the midst of that, King Agrippa was bought, brought into the, um, the situation. And so at the end of 22 last week, Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. I want to hear Paul myself. And so Festus said, tomorrow you will hear him. And now we read God's word. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. And so Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this I hope, and, and for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. May God write his word upon each of our hearts. So this morning, I would like to give you uh, a new way of looking at the Apostle Paul. I didn't say a new perspective, just a new way of looking at Paul before his conversion. You know, it's, it's pretty common to look at Paul before his conversion on the road to Damascus and to view him as, as a really bad guy, maybe even as a monster, as the worst of the worst. 
we know from our time back in Acts chapter 9 that Paul took letters that were given to him from the high priest. These letters were essentially arrest warrants. And he went from town to town, rounding up Christians and then binding them with shackles. And so if you want to picture this, you might picture the tactics of the German Gestapo back in the 30s and 40s who went from town to town um, trying to rid Central Europe of the Jews. Now, I've always been fascinated by the, the words that Paul use, or the words that Luke uses to describe Paul. Back in Acts 9:1, we're told that Paul breathed murder and threats against Jesus' followers. He breathed murderous threats. He inhaled piety and he exhaled poison. Uh, we see in today's passage that he personally imprisoned many believers. And then he sat on a jury of sorts and he decided their fate. And then when it came time for him to cast a vote, he voted for death. And so it's, it's understandable that many look at Paul prior to his conversion and, and see him as this immoral man. But I want to contend this morning that he was a most moral man. Some, some look at him as a criminal, but I want you to see him this morning as, as not a criminal, but a man committed to God. And yet you can be moral, and you can be committed to God, and you can righteously uphold God's law, and you can even build barriers to keep you from getting close to breaking God's law and still be lost. That's Paul's testimony. Paul's testimony is that he was a moral man, he was a godly man, but he was a lost man. And, and pews are filled with moral people who are committed to God, and yet their hearts are far from him. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me or calls out my name, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Then he says, For on that day, the day of judgment, many... Many will say, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus says, I will declare to them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Friends, even law keepers can be workers of lawlessness. Even people who aim for righteousness may be unrighteous if, if in fact, they are self-righteous. And that's what we see this morning. Paul's testimony, which is part of his defense, is not, I was a bad guy and then Christ came into my life. It's, I was, a, I was a most moral man. I was devoutly religious. And yet I once was lost. And so with that in mind, I just have two principles that I want you to consider this morning. First, I, I want you to consider that for Paul and for us, we may be innocent and yet guilty. You know, one of my pet peeves, I'm discovering as I get older that I have more of those. Um, one of my pet peeves is when people speak of being innocent until proven guilty. Listen, that's not a thing, by the way. When people use that phrase, innocent until proven guilty, they're, they're referring to a legal principle that dates back to the 6th century, and it's the principle of the presumption of innocence. The correct way to speak about that principle is to say that a person is presumed innocent until proven guilty. So, as an example, if I go out this afternoon and I rob the QT down here on the corner and then I'm caught, I'm not innocent 
until some prosecutor proves my guilt. I'm guilty from the moment that I commit the crime, but the state must presume that I'm innocent. But from the time that I commit the crime until the time that I am proven guilty, I'm still guilty. It's not like there is this this, um, sort of purgatory state where I've done the crime, but I'm not guilty until I'm proven guilty. No, in fact, I am guilty. My concern is not to give you a legal lecture this morning, but to help you see how, how many times we incorporate that mindset into the spiritual realm. Spiritually speaking, before God and his righteous law, we are not innocent until proven guilty. No, we enter this world guilty. Notice, notice what Festus told Agrippa in verse 25. Chapter 25, verse 25. He said, I found that he, Paul, had done nothing deserving death. And then we see a couple of verses later that that neither the Jews nor the Romans had anything solid enough against Paul from which they could even draw up charges. Paul was, according to both Roman and Jewish law, innocent. Even even the, the murderous actions that he committed before his conversion, those were sanctioned by the high priest. And so we might look at his life, we might look at his actions as atrocities, but Paul was trying to do the right thing. He believed he was in the right. According according to man's law, both the Jews who wanted him dead but couldn't even find anything to charge him with, and even the Romans. According to man's law, Paul was innocent. And yet, according to God's law, he was guilty. Festus said, I can't find anything with this man that deserves death. But Paul himself wrote to the Roman Christians years earlier that every single person deserves death. He said, for the wages of sin is death. And just a few chapters earlier in Romans 3.23, Paul quotes from the Psalms. He takes a few Psalms and sort of pieces them together. And he quotes from the prophet Isaiah. And he says, none is righteous. No Not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. All have become worthless. There is no one good. No, not one. And then he just continues this downward spiral. With their mouths they practice deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips. Their feet are swift to shed blood. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is none righteous. No, not one. And then he tells us three chapters later. That because all of us are sinful, the wages of sin is death. And so Paul was innocent before men, but guilty before God. And here's what we have to understand, friends, that that we're in the same situation. Our, Our standing before God is not based on our goodness. So you may be a good person, but good isn't good enough because God doesn't grade on a curve. And so we, we think about this principle that we see that even though Paul, even though there was nothing for men to charge him with, he was guilty in his sin before God. And we have to pl- apply this principle of guilt and innocence to all of life. Just because something is legal doesn't mean that it's moral. There are all sorts of things in, in our nation, at least, that are legal but immoral. Because God's standard is not legality, it's morality and righteousness and holiness. Bruce mentioned earlier that today is Sanctity of Life Sunday and we mourn the millions of lives that have been lost to abortion. But abortion is legal. 
yet it is not moral. And so we, we cannot base our acceptance of something on whether or not it is legal or whether or not the world says that it's right. We base our acceptance of something, we base our actions on whether or not it is right according to God's word and his character. And when it comes to this principle of being innocent and yet guilty, I, I want to give you a couple of thoughts on how this impacts the way that we see people, all people, even the person in the mirror. So, so how does this principle, just like Paul, of being innocent before men but guilty before God, how does this impact the way that we see others? Well, first, it impacts the way that we see others so that we look beyond their niceness to their need. You know, many times we, we look at a baby or a young child and, and we talk about their childlike innocence. And, and I know what we mean, and I mean the same thing by it. We mean that that child hasn't yet been jaded by the world, that they're hopeful and they're sweet, and all of that's true. But what's also true is that they were conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity. They inherited the sin nature of Adam, and apart from salvation in Christ, they're lost. And it's true of our children, and it's true of you, and it's true of me, and it's true of the people that we encounter day in and day out. A person may display christ-like virtue and yet still be lost that was paul's testimony my grandfather my paternal grandfather was a wonderful grandfather a wonderful man he was patient kind good he was faithful he was gentle exercised self-control if, if those qualities sound familiar they should because they're the fruit of the spirit at least some of them and yet, until very late in life, just about five years before his death, my father was not, or my grandfather was not a believer. He didn't possess the spirit. He was lost. And I prayed for him constantly. Not because he was a bad person, but because he was a good person who depended on his goodness. Today, Jason, Pastor Jason and his family, they're down in Houston so that Jason can baptize his brother-in-law. Let's celebrate with him. According to, according to Jason, to hear him tell it, his brother-in-law is an exemplary husband, an exemplary father, an all-around decent guy. But until just recently, he was guilty and condemned before God. Now we can thank God that we call him a brother. You see, if we do not believe in this principle of innocent and yet at the same time guilty, we, we will not take evangelism seriously. We will not pray for people's souls. We will not speak to them about their need for a Savior because we'll wrongly believe that their goodness is, in fact, righteousness. And so understanding this, that, that you can be innocent before men and yet still guilty before God, this should shape the way that we see people. That the nicest person may be in desperate need for a Savior. That this child who possesses these childlike, innocent qualities still is in need of Jesus. And then secondly, it, it should impact the way that we see ourselves. If, if we equate goodness with righteousness, we'll focus our efforts on behavior modification and set Jesus aside. So this was my story for a number of years before I became a believer. I, I wasn't a bad kid, at least by the world's standards, but I was a lost kid by God's standards. In, in many ways, I think my life was, was similar to that of Paul's. 
except the murder part. <laughs> you see, I, I, I believed in God. I, I served him faithfully. And yet apart from Christ, I was under the wrath of God. And so we, we don't look at the man or woman in the mirror and think just because they're a good person makes them a righteous person. Our righteousness comes from Christ alone. And so the world may look at us and say, there, there's an exemplary guy right there. A good father, a good husband, a wonderful colleague and co-worker. I'm pretty sure he goes to that church there on 51st Street. He's regular. N that matters not if we remain guilty before God. And, and so what about you? Do you see yourself as a fairly upright person who just needs a little help in this area or that area? Or do you see yourself as a desperate sinner in need of God's grace? And friends, even after, even after we have come to know Christ, even after uh, conversion, we mustn't view ourselves as basically good people, but as people who constantly need the grace of God and the powerful work of the Holy Spirit to sanctify us. And so, just like Paul, we may be innocent before men and yet guilty before God, and we have to recognize that. Here's a second principle. Many people, just like Paul, are guilty and yet godly. And the word godly, it means to be devoutly pious. That's all it means. It, it means to be devoutly pious. And, and piety can be a good thing, but piety can also be poison if it doesn't flow from the Spirit of God. I want you to listen. Don't, don't turn there. I want you to listen to Paul's testimony in Philippians chapter 3. And the reason I want you to turn there is because I'm going to read his testimony, but instead of reading from the English Standard Version, which is our text, I'm going to read it to you from the New Living Translation, which amplifies, I think, the, the adjectives. This is Paul's testimony in Philippians 3. See if it resonates. We must rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if ever there was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand strict obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him no longer counting on my own righteousness through obedience to the law, but rather I have become righteous through faith in Christ. That's Paul's testimony in Philippians 3, and it's very similar to the testimony that he gives here before King Agrippa in verses 4 through 9. Very similar, similar to trajectory. Paul is standing before Agrippa, and he testifies to his piety. He testifies to his godliness. He said that from youth, 
from his earliest days, he was an upright, pious young man. He was committed to the things of God. He said, I lived as a Pharisee. And, 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 you know, we use that term pejoratively, Pharisee, Pharisaical. But according to Paul's understanding, before he became a believer, that was not a bad thing. It was a, it was a really good thing. Pharisees were the green berets of the Jews. They were the elite, the best of the best. He was even convinced within himself that all of those violent things that he did in opposing Jesus were good and right. Paul was a good person. He was a godly person by anyone's definition of godliness. But he was guilty in his sin. Friends, do not equate godliness with righteousness. Do not equate personal piety with being born again. What we'll see next week, beginning in verse 12, is this transition Paul makes where he begins to talk about his conversion and his experience on the road to Damascus. But Paul says, even before that, I was godly. I was devoutly pious, and yet still guilty. And Jesus addressed this in my favorite parable, in Luke 15, parable of the prodigal son. Now, that parable is actually more about the elder brother. The elder brother who stayed home. The elder brother who obeyed his father, worked for his father, lived a pious life before his father, and yet had no meaningful relationship with his father. So the elder son said this, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. You never gave. You never gave. That's where our godliness becomes misguided when we substitute God's grace and his giving with our outward forms of godliness. When we rely on personal piety for blessing and happiness rather than rooting our happiness in Jesus Christ from which personal piety should flow, we may be godly externally, but guilty internally. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that we shouldn't strive for godliness. I'm not saying that we, that we shouldn't commit our lives to personal piety. I'm not saying that's wrong. But what I'm saying is that you may be the most godly person imaginable. You may read your Bible, pray every day, attend church every week, serve in a soup kitchen, give tithes of all that you possess, and still remain lost in your guilt. And if your testimony doesn't have a transition in some way like Paul's testimony, I don't mean it has to be radical. I pray for our children when I baptize them that they would never remember a day that they, that they couldn't remember and recall Jesus and his work for them. We, we don't want them to wander away like the younger brother, but we don't want to turn them into elder brothers either. I don't want my own children to wander away and to waste their life on, on what Luke says is riotous living. I don't want that for them, but I'm desperately afraid that they'll become elder brothers because in that parable, the younger brother is restored. The elder brother remains impenitent and distant. The church is filled with very devout but very spiritually dead churchgoers. Churches and pews are filled with people who put their hope in godliness, but not in God's righteousness given to us in Christ. If personal piety could have saved Paul, 
and that whole spectacle on the road to Damascus was unnecessary. If your godliness could save you, then the Son of God didn't need to come for you and to live a perfect life in your place and to die a substitutionary death on your behalf. But he did. Because your hope is not found in your godliness, which is simply personal piety. Not a bad thing, but can be. We're all guilty, despite how godly we may be. And so here's what I want to leave you with. When you stand before men, or, or maybe when you no longer stand before men, but when you are laid before men, and, and your days are done, people might say the nicest things about you. You may be innocent before men, but when you stand before God, will you remain in your guilt? And, and let me say to those of us who are believers, right, to those of us who are Christians, that, that our hope doesn't change once we put our hope in Jesus. That we don't depend on Jesus to get us into the door and then put our hope in ourselves to make it the rest of the way. When you stand before God, the only thing that you should be able to say is nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I too, thy fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. That was Paul's hope, to say, once I was lost, but not I found my way, but I was found. And we get to see the joy of that next week. Is that your confession, your testimony? Are, are you putting your hope in Jesus? Have you put your hope in Jesus? And if you are, let's keep running to him. Let's keep running to him day in and day out, never substituting our personal piety for his finished work, but always falling before him in faith. Let's pray towards that end. Heavenly Father, we, we can look back on Paul's conversion, which were shown in Acts chapter 9 and the testimony of his life in the later parts of Acts, and even his own autobiography, which he writes about in many epistles. And we can look at his life as, as this immoral murderer. But Paul didn't see himself that way. He saw himself as a moral upright man. Not, not as a godless person, but as a deeply godly and committed person. And yet at the same time, he can say in the same breath, I was lost. There's no hope in, those, in that confidence. There's, there's no hope for us if, if we look back and acknowledge our sin, but we put our, our confidence in ourselves. There's only hope when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. And so I pray for those who were here this morning who maybe have grown up in the church, or maybe they're relatively new to the church and the message of the gospel. Lord, if they're putting their confidence like my grandfather did in just being a good guy, a good husband, hard worker, faithful friend, but they've never fallen down and confessed faith in Christ, would you do a sovereign work of grace to save them? And Lord, for the many I know who are here this morning who are believers, their hope and confidence is in Jesus Christ. But subtly, and over time, they've substituted their ongoing works for Jesus' finished work. 
They've substituted their own piety, which should flow from a justified life for, for personal piety and acceptance before you. Would you dissuade us of that and help us always to run to Jesus, to take hold of him, to fix our eyes on him as the author of Hebrews says, because he's not only the author of our faith, he's the perfecter of it. And so we'll ask your spirit to do all of that in Christ's name. Amen.